Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week that cover a range of issues that are intensely relevant to our international education profession. I will get to those questions in just a minute, but first want to say a special shout out to those of you watching live here on Facebook, those watching on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, and of course those that are making our uh, roundup a regular part of their podcast listening uh, through downloading that and making us a part of your journey. Uh, we're over 1,300 downloads now for our weekly roundups. And uh, very happy to be a part of your uh, edification, we hope, uh, each week. So let's get uh, to our questions today, which all come from stories, new stories we've been seeing in, uh, inter in various international uh, presses uh, from uh, not only U.S. sources, but global sources as well. And that's something we really focus on here. Obviously, we've, we're in international education, a world that is uh, very fluid and uh, increasingly smaller in terms of how connected we all are but increasingly larger in terms of the problems that we're facing in our world today. Uh, we catalog a lot of these news stories each week in our newsletter, all the SMIE News Fit to Share, and that stands for Social Media and International Ed News, two different sections. And uh, you'll have stories, uh, probably five to seven social media stories, oftentimes where they overlap with international education, as well as probably 25 to 30 uh, international ed stories that highlight some of the key areas uh, both uh, in the United States but also globally in different uh, important markets uh, on what, what some of the issues are with some of our competitors. So this newsletter is available free of charge uh, to those who wish to subscribe. I'm dropping a link to this week's edition in the comments section on the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting so you can get the link for that uh, to subscribe to uh, the newsletter. Again, it uh, comes to your mail inbox Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern each week. Uh, you can also subscribe on the smieconsulting.org slash subscribe website link. And we'll be hopefully uh, adding to uh, our subscribers to this and making this a much more uh, uh, widely distributed mail, uh, mail service for international educators. So please share it with your friends. Let's get right into the questions. Uh, first up is, what is the state of global social and digital media? I always like uh, to keep a, keep a finger on the pulse on what's going on in the wider world when it comes to trends uh, with uh, use of uh, social media platforms, uh, worldwide access to the internet, mobile usage, all of that. All of it impacts kind of how we need to focus our recruitment strategies when we're talking about international education and bringing students to this country. Uh, what I, and one of our, my primary source uh, for this is uh, the team at We Are Social that do really the hard, hard, hard graft in terms of gathering the data each quarter and each year to uh, present their quarterly reports and yearly reports on the state of digital in April 2021, which is what today's uh, question is really driven by this article. It kind of highlights some of the key trends that you want to be aware of in, in what you do uh, in international education. Uh, world population now at 7.85 billion people. And interestingly, uh, uh, we're now at 60% of the world's population, which is now, which would make it 4.72 billion people, now have access to the internet. Uh, and that's grown by 7.6% in the last year. These are some of the high-level stats and facts reported by uh, the We Are Social team, who I might add have also, also recently uh, teamed up with uh, 
uh, Hootsuite as part of their data gathering uh, resources. Uh, which has also driven up Hootsuite's uh, monthly prices substantially from $10 a month to now $75 a month for one person user, up to 10 platforms. So I'm not too happy with Hootsuite. I've been a long time user for over uh, 10, 11 years now, uh, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm seeing the full value of what they're bringing. But that's a story for another day, another conversation offline. But with regard to this report that they've teamed up with We Are Social on, uh, there are now, uh, we said 4.72 billion people in the world that have internet access. 5.27 billion people in the world ha also now use mobile devices. Uh, so that uh, is an important part. That means more than two thirds of the, all the people on the earth now have a mobile phone. So pretty significant. Uh, then we also have in the last 12 months, we've had more than a half a billion people, 500 million people, uh, join social media platforms over the past year. And now that puts that total at 4.33 billion people in the world are now on social media. So a lot of different uh, nuances between uh, behind these facts and uh, the full article that I'm dropping a link to in the comments section on the Facebook page will go into those. Uh, but it's really fascinating to see uh, the, not only the growth of internet access around the world, which is a good thing, people's access to information, uh, is, is consistently growing. Uh, what's, uh, what is also important, I think, and when you look in, in terms of the, the next three billion, the unconnected uh, uh, populations in the world. Uh, for, for example, uh, in the U.S., uh, only 6.3% of, of uh, the world's internet users live in the United States. Uh, but 13% are in India, 21% in China. So there's uh, in a, a lot of a lot of neat data points in here that if you if you're into those kind of things, uh, I, good conversation starters at dinner uh, or in your office. I think that's important to to keep uh, keep our fingers on the pulse there. What I uh, will say, there's a couple of interesting pieces that they look at here. Uh, they've started uh, create uh, created a category for world's favorite social platform. Uh, some two disclaimers in this uh, in the data set that they're looking at here. They do not include YouTube as a social platform, rather as a video platform. And also they do not uh, include Chinese social media, which are fairly are, are accessible outside of China, are pretty much unique to the Chinese uh, uh, multiverse in terms of their internet uh, world. Uh, so that's, uh, but if you look at, and you had to guess what the world's most popular or favorite social platform is, what would your first guess be? If it's not, if we're not looking at China, we're not looking at YouTube, uh, what, would you, what would you think it would be? Probably Facebook, right? Uh, though that's, uh, it's not Facebook, it's a Facebook property and it's WhatsApp. Uh, it's the world's favorite platform, social platform. So interesting to see these numbers and in terms of the total usage here, uh, this, the data that on, the, on the charts here really show uh, uh, a quarter of internet users age 16 to 64 say WhatsApp is their favorite social media platform. So that's, uh, that's interesting to, to note. Uh, Facebook is second. Uh, overall, Facebook's four main platforms account for more than two-thirds of global favorites outside of China. Uh, Twitter ranks fourth as a worldwide uh, at the worldwide level, uh, though fewer than 5% of respondents chose this. Uh, so that's uh, Twitter at present rates higher than TikTok. It's a little bit interesting. It's interesting that TikTok's included in a social platform when YouTube is uh, a video platform and so is TikTok, but it's a 
maybe short form video. Uh, that's interesting to see. But uh, in, uh, really great, great data coming out of We Are Social as always. So always like to plug those, plug those data, uh, keep those, those data points kind of in, in, the, in the center part of your mind as you look towards understanding uh, where opportunities are for you to have a greater presence online. Uh, if you're looking at international students and what markets, uh, in what markets certain social media um, platforms make sense. Uh, we Are Social uh, does do country level reports as well. They don't go quite as in depth into the, to the social media platforms in each country necessarily that give you that kind of insight. Some they do, some they don't, some mostly major markets. But uh, there's some, uh, another group that I've uh, began following, WebCertain, uh, in the last, uh, last year or so. Uh, they also have a, a, a kind of a service fee that you can you can buy to get access to that data, country level reports that do go into best uh, social media platforms in each market. So that's that's another thing. Uh, certainly, anyone who wants uh, wants to have access to that, uh, just let me know, and I'll, I'll be sure to share links to those. Now, that's a that's what is the state of global social digital media? It's expanding, ever expanding. Uh, when you think in a year, a half a billion more people in the world have started using using social media. Uh, when you think now, 60% of the world are on the internet, uh, and two thirds of the world have a mobile phone. So the access is there. Uh, it's increasing every year um, at dramatic rates in some in some places of the world. Other parts, obviously, we're already at saturation. So it's, it's interesting to keep, keep a sense and keep a global perspective on this as well, that yes, not every country, uh, maybe in the U.S., Facebook is no longer uh, uh, the it, it platform to be on, uh, but you look at uh, Facebook's user base with over 2 billion users now, uh, got to think that uh, 150, 175 million in the U.S. are on Facebook. So that uh, more than 1.7 billion people are not on Facebook outside the United States, or are on Facebook outside the United States. So good to have that perspective on, on things. And as other platforms grow in other parts of the world, you, you, you see uh, just how important some of these older platforms to us in the US are still super relevant on the global stage. Now let's shift gears to the second uh, question. And that is how will travel happen this year for students? And my goodness me, this is, uh, we thought we had a rough uh, fall last year, summer and fall last year, in terms of expectations for students that were admitted, hoping to come. Uh, COVID wrecked the dreams of a lot of students trying to physically get to the United States last year. We had probably, of the new international students that universities reported if starting in the fall, 20% of those were studying remotely from their home countries. That's from some of the IIE's uh, uh, fall snapshot data last year. We also see students who deferred admissions for a year, took a gap year, and maybe that's they if they deferred a year, maybe they're looking to still come in the fall. Maybe they're not. Uh, they're gonna, there's going to be some uh, melt from that group in terms of who's coming. And then you've got all these students that have applied as it were, if it were their first year, uh, that they, in their normal cycle, would be coming to the United States for studies, either for bachelor's or master's or doctoral programs, maybe even associates or ESL programs. But you see uh, what the challenges are right now. We've talked about them, about the access to visa interviews at consulates. Right now it's appointments only, uh, emergency appointments only at almost half the consulates in the world, if they're even open. Uh, and for those that are open, we're looking at, uh, we'll get to the data on this in a minute, but we're looking at a, a, a playing field 
that has, uh, has changed uh, dramatically, uh, where now for U.S. citizens who are looking to go abroad, uh, U.S. State Department last week, and there's been new news this week, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit, but the U.S. will boost do not travel advisories, uh, that's that level four uh, travel advisory, do not travel to 80% of the world, uh, world's countries. Now, that, as a health advisory, that's a CDC recommendation. State Department's following up on that and making that a, a recommendation for U.S. citizens. Uh, we've also seen this week, and we'll, we'll cover these stories less, less and less as, the, as we get closer to them because the news keeps coming thick and fast. We've seen this week two things happen. Uh, U.S. citizens who are fully vaccinated can go to Europe and the U.K. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of the exemption uh, to that 80% of the world, which will include many of those European countries. If you're not vaccinated, they will say don't travel. If you are vaccinated, they can, they'll say going to Europe is okay. So that's encouraging, at least for, for some of us uh, who might be thinking about getting out. Uh, then you also see the challenge uh, also this week, uh, we, we'll, we'll talk about that, that, this news story a bit in coming weeks as well. You saw the, uh, the State Department declare that uh, many of the countries that are on this 80% do not travel list uh, and have been part of the COVID ban for travel, uh, including China, Brazil, Iran, other countries uh, that are major senders to the United States. Uh, there was a national interest exemption uh, uh, memo sent out this week by State Department that allows uh, those students uh, that are looking to return and new students who can get visas the opportunity uh, to, to, to be exempted from those travel restrictions for entry into the United States. So that's positive. So that's a sign from this administration that they are making exemptions for international students, uh, even in these countries that are on uh, do not travel list to the United States. Uh, that's something that I think is, is important for us to keep in mind as we, we think about larger and where that maybe tends to point in the direction where we're moving about, about availability of uh, visas, because that really will be the bottom line. But uh, there's a Pi News article this past week on this very issue on uh, the availability of, uh, of visas, uh, consulate point, consulates open so that visas can uh, be issued. Uh, that's uh, a Pi News reports and the data set that I've seen as well that our, our friends at Brighter Ed uh, keep, uh, keep a hold of, and that is 200, of the 265 U.S. embassies and consulates around the world, 123, so a little less than half, probably 50, uh, 40, 47% are either closed, temporarily closed, or only offering emergency appointment, appointments. So that's a huge reduction. And most of those, uh, the major sending countries, uh, China especially, have been closed for, for quite some time, and there's a huge backlog there. Uh, but you have seen in recent days, and a couple weeks ago, the uh, Consul General in India indicated that visas will, student visas will become available, embassies and consulates will be open uh, for that, and they expect to be able to meet demand in the coming four months before classes begin in the fall. That uh, certainly was great to hear that, and we'll have another news story about that next week in our newsletter. But as anyone who's been paying attention to COVID numbers around the world and some of the challenges other countries are facing, India is right in the, in the, in the, in the throes of a huge second wave and uh, huge shortages of, of basics like oxygen uh, at hospitals uh, to t take care of those people who, who are at the earlier stages, shortage of, of drugs to treat those initial 
uh, uh, symptoms of COVID. Uh, so there's some real basic needs that uh, a country the size of India is really going through its worst period, its darkest days of the, of the COVID, uh, COVID crisis. So our, our thoughts and prayers go out to our, our colleagues in India and to, to stay safe. And um, even, even with our Education USA friends uh, have had to cancel a series of virtual events even, uh, they're not able to move forward with right now because of uh, the severity of the lockdowns and restrictions that are being put in place there. So, but the visa issue will continue to come up uh, and it's, we're getting closer to peak visa season starting in middle, middle of May. And we'll have another, another brief bit of news on that next week, I'm sure, on what, uh, the, what, the, what the prospects are looking like for consulates to be uh, more opened more widely uh, across the globe and in particular key markets. So we'll keep our, our, our fingers on that one. Related to this, how the travel piece will happen, uh, university presidents oftentimes get, uh, get a, a lot of press, particularly at the more selective schools, uh, when they raise their heads up and speak out on issues. We saw that happen last summer with uh, when the Trump administration uh, was proposing a ban on any students coming in that were becoming for hybrid or online present, online courses if they were returning students. Um, but that, that was fortunately not implemented uh, after only a week as a result of a huge groundswell of public, uh, public support and institutional support for that, uh, for bringing down that, that ban. But uh, university presidents like uh, Larry Bacow at, uh, at Harvard he has urged uh, USCIS uh, to ease the return to campus uh, for international students by permanently, and I love this, permanently increasing visa flexibility in a letter sent on Monday, where uh, right now, uh, based on the Trump administration rule, international students requiring F1s were unable to enter the United States if they were coming for the first time, if their institution, if their courses were fully remote. So that left Harvard's first-year international students scattered around the globe and basically studying remotely or deferring or perhaps finding a, a study part or a university partner of Harvard's where they could begin their, their, their classes. So this is something I've been talking about for, for a while because not just for return, continuing students, which we've also found out this week, uh, D, uh, CIS, DHS, have extended the March 20th rule from last year that allowed returning students or continuing students to, uh, to, to continue to study remotely uh, and not lose status uh, to be able to uh, be in, enrolled in person full-time or in person in the United States, uh, even though the courses might be online or hybrid. That's still allowed, that's, so that's been extended uh, through the next academic year, which is fantastic. And it, fairly forward-thinking when you think about it for DHS, which tends to be a very slow-moving beast. Uh, it's, good, it's good to see that kind of a, a policy come out. We'll have more on that next week as well in the newsletter. But uh, there's, there's definitely movement, and I think a recognition on the part of state, on the part of the administration and, and DHS, that uh, we need to be uh, putting together policies that are common sense. And certainly uh, Larry Baker's um, recommendation to have this uh, permanent option uh, for hybrid or online courses for international students who want to come to the United States. Uh, and I think the, the big difference in if this were ever adopted would be to make it, um, make it uh, 
extended for for new students, not just continuing students, because uh, obviously the USCIS action does uh, does address the continuing student piece, and will allow that this for this next academic year, which is fantastic. Uh, but it does still doesn't account for getting those current those new students from last year and new students coming this year in through the country, which obviously isn't DHS's uh, responsibility other than CPP at the border uh, allowing them in. It's the consulates and embassies that are going to be key to that. Uh, another news story related was another pie, pie story, uh, pie news story about Chinese students, obviously the most critical demographic for U.S. higher education in terms of it, current number of international students, uh, where there's it's a news story entirely about Chinese students heading to Singapore in search of U.S. visas. And they're doing that because the consulate is uh, embassy is open there in, in Singapore for visa appointments. And uh, there are other countries as well where the, the, visa, the U.S. embassies might be open. So look, students are going looking in search of U.S. consulates that are open because they want their want to really realize their dream of studying in the United States this fall. So uh, it's encouraging uh, to see this. Uh, and I, I think there's going to be more, uh, more like the, uh, that there's the drive and the desire to study in the U.S. is fairly high, higher than I think a lot of prognosticators give uh, our students' interest in the U.S. credit for, is they're willing to go to the extreme lengths to and extreme costs uh, to realize their dreams of studying in the United States. So uh, we'll keep our eyes out on that one because that's, that's a story I think is going to rumble on throughout the summer in terms of access to uh, to visa appointments around the world. So let's shift gears and talk in a, in a bigger picture context of international education, international enrollment management, uh, strategic international enrollment management, and focus on the question, can you survive without international partnerships these days? The world is a very different place than when I entered uh, the profession in 1993. Uh, as a first international first trip as an international educator, going for a week to Switzerland and Germany on an organized tour, and then having a conference, or visiting high schools and meeting counselors at this conference from all over Europe, and the world was very different. We 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 at a time we we had partners in terms of like we did a tour. We couldn't uh, tour, we hadn't really done a lot of tours by ourselves. Uh, we were going on physical tours, and that was about it in terms of our partnerships at that point. Uh, we were beginning to really explore working with um, overseas advisors. At that time, that overseas advisors is what they called Education USA. It didn't morph to Education USA until early 2000. So, what uh, the partnerships piece today is dramatically different than it was. It was kind of like, yeah, it might help a little bit here and there, uh, help us get somewhere, uh, go to schools efficiently, that type of thing. But today, to try and do uh, international admissions, international en enrollment, international recruitment planning without the use of partners uh, is impossible. And I, I've been delving into this issue quite a bit uh, in my series of um, the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. It's a series I've been doing uh, for IDP Connect. This is the fourth um, month, uh, so, or the fourth P uh, that came out uh, just this week. Uh, this past week, and that's uh, the sixth, the fourth P is partnerships, talking about what kind of partnerships matter and how partnerships can and should be used in creating an enrollment management plan for international students that really makes sense, that incorporates uh, people that can help you achieve your institutional goals, 
but also not just external partners, uh, whether that be Education USA, U.S. Commercial Service, uh, educational agents you're working with, university partners overseas, institutional partners. Uh, it could be um, any secondary school networks uh, that you're connected into, counselors that you're, your colleagues with that are uh, become feeder schools for your institution. Uh, but it also talks about your, and importantly, your on-campus partners, that these are the people who support international education on your campus. These are the people who uh, are touching the lives of your international students outside your admissions or ISSS office. Uh, it's uh, your financial aid, it's your housing, it's your student employment, it's the registrar's office, it's career services, it's alumni that cover the fast, the full life cycle of international student journeys through, through before, during, and after your institution, uh, they've attended your institution. So the partnerships piece, and I make this point in my article, dropping the link in the Facebook, uh, Facebook comments related to this, uh, this live chat, and that is something that I think uh, we can't underestimate the importance of our on-campus partners uh, because they make, can make or break the student experience. Uh, we all talk about uh, wanting to make sure that students are taken care of once they get on campus. And that means your, your, the offices that you don't have direct influence over are aware of the issues that your students are going through that are up to speed, particularly your leadership, your direct uh, and senior leadership on campus are aware of the challenges that your students are facing and that those that interact with them on campus are aware these are things that are unique to them that we need to be aware of and uh, be uh, compassionate toward as we have our conversations, as we build our relationships with the students while they're on campus. Because the more positive experiences they have on your campus, the better reports uh, they will have to share with colleagues, uh, family, and friends uh, about your institution when they leave. So I, there's so much value in partnerships in international education and selecting the right ones to help you achieve your institutional goals is mission critical as far as I'm concerned, that you can't move on. Uh, and really, it's not necessarily you, you must have X, Y, and Z partnerships in order to succeed. It's identifying the right partners uh, that help have uh, help have access to the, the tools that you need to help you achieve your goals in particular areas related to your international students' journeys, from whether it's the initial prospect stage where you're trying to get students interested to uh, the admissions process, to orientation and advising, to uh, when they're searching for jobs and internships and preparation for life after graduation. And then alumni, how well are they treated at the back end of the process? Uh, do they, does your alumni office even care about where these students end up? Uh, do they, is there tracking data on graduation rates for internationals, uh, job placement rates for internationals, uh, where they are after graduation? All of those things, is that even part of what your institution does? Uh, and that's, that's something I think uh, is probably a real growth area for institutions. After they get the front end of the process right, they wanna make sure they're doing things right on the back end too. Uh, for the, those outcomes that are so important for prospective students and their parents now who are paying upwards of a quarter million dollars uh, for just tuition alone at some institutions, maybe more, uh, to attend your institution. That, and to do that sight unseen is, and, and to convey that impression on how important that is, 
uh, of a decision that is and how, uh, how much we kind of take for granted sometimes that all oh, students are just going to come. No, they're not. You really have to work for it. And you really have to have a system in place that cares for those students and anticipates needs and meets needs throughout their life cycle on your campus. And the partnerships you, you choose are going to be most important in helping you get to where you need to be. So that's uh, that's a piece of the six P's that we talk about. I'm, I'm implementing this uh, six P strategy with a number of different institutions now as we look at program reviews and strategic planning uh, efforts for next steps on how it does how their approach needs to be and should be all-encompassing campus-wide community uh, in terms of recruitment, enrollment, and managing those students once they're on campus. So uh, if you'd like more information on that, please reach out and I'll be happy to share what that means. So that's what we have for you today on the Roundup. Uh, it's really been a pleasure coming to you as it is every week uh, to share our thoughts on some of the key issues of our day and some tools, hopefully, and solutions that you can implement to help uh, improve your, uh, your, your circumstances for your international students on your campus. So until next time, we wish you a very uh, successful conclusion to uh, the week and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Take care. Cheers.